Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Chapel Middle School Podcast. Let's head into the service for this week's message. Fifteen years have passed, and, and in that time, David, the shepherd boy, has killed a giant and won many battles. And as that has happened, the nation of Israel has rallied around David, and they like David. And they've talked about how much they like David. And because of how much fame he was getting, Saul grew jealous and tried to kill this David. But David luckily was able to escape time and time again from the times that Saul tried to kill David. And now 15 years have gone by since David and Goliath fought. And now David is no longer a little shepherd boy. When we speak of David, don't think of him as still a little boy. David is a full-grown man. He went from little boy killing a giant to full-grown man. Okay, he is a grown man. And now Saul is getting older. And we learned last week that Saul fought his last battle against the Philistines. And that because of his sin and because of what he had done against the Lord, it reached a point where after 15 years of his rebellion, of him seeking jealousy and murdering, after that time, God said, that is enough. And after 15 years, Saul was killed in battle, and his sons were killed in battle, and the entire army of Israel was uh, destroyed or beaten back. So the Philistines now have beaten the Israelites, and news gets to David, who was not at the battle that King Saul is dead and the Israelite army has been defeated. And when he gets this news, he cries. And I'm not talking about like the single tear down the cheek, like, oh no, you know, like, you know, it drops down. I'm talking about the, the full-scale weeping. I'm talking about the lingering loogie in the back of the throat, eyes balled up, all the moisture is in the eyes and falling out like a teardrop flood. He weeps for Saul. He cries over the death of his enemy. That's the kind of love that David has for his enemy. It's an amazing thing. So after seven years, David consolidates his forces after, after the death of Saul. Seven years happen where he consolidates his forces, and after seven years, he is uh, crowned the king over all of Israel. It took some time. But as soon as he is crowned king, all the nations around Israel realize, wait a second, hold on, they have a new king they're weak. He's trying to figure out his power. He's trying to consolidate it. Let's attack now. And all the other nations begin to attack David and his men. But the issue here is um, it's still David and God is still with David. And every time they attack, David and his men repel them and fight them back. And he gets to the point where not only do all of them attack David and they all are left running from David, but David actually begins to attack them, and he expands the territory of Israel to an even greater radius than it was under King Saul. So during these conquests, during these battles, David has an elite force of men that are around him. In the U.S. military, we, we have our army, but we have different rankings or different um, designations or branches of the army that do different things. And even within those, there are more elite and specialized troops within those different branches. For example, we have like the, the SEAL Team 6, the elite of the Navy, or you, or you have the Army Rangers or the Delta Force of the Army branch of it. And so we have these elite soldiers. Well, David had a group of what was called mighty men. And these were the elite of his forces, the best fighters that he had. And when he went into battle, these men were by his side and were next to him in every battle that he fought. 
And while these battles happened, you need to understand, David wasn't the only one fighting, okay? He wasn't charging out there alone. There were men next to him, and then there was a greater army beside him. But these were the professional troops who were always under David's command. And these guys were awesome. I mean, they were awesome, okay? We're going to go through here and explain what these men were like, but they are incredible. And this is the hall of fame, the best of the best of David's best men. I went with my family to Cooperstown, New York, and we got to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And it was so cool because you get to go into this museum, and they have all these different statues or little busts of different people. And they have, like, from here up, like a statue of their face, and they're wearing a ball cap. And below it, it lists all of their achievements. Like, you'd go up, and it'd say, Hank Aaron, all-time home run leader, and then it would like show how many home runs he had, and it'd show his batting average and how many hits he had and everything like that. Or, or you'd go over to, to Tom Glavin and it'd show how many wins, how many games he had won, how many people he had struck out. And it lists the achievements of these different men in the sport of Major League Baseball. And it was so cool to walk through and to think, what if I was in the Hall of Fame? And what would be listed under my name and being in this hall? Well, well, we come to the Hall of Fame for David's mighty men. And it lists their names and it lists their accomplishments. And guys, they're awesome, okay? If you read these and you're a guy and you don't be like, yeah, something's wrong with you, okay? If you don't read this and get a little bit like, yeah, that's right, okay, there you go, I see you. Something's wrong with you. Ladies, if you don't read this and you think, okay, that guy sounds dreamy, something's wrong with you, okay? If you don't see this and think, man, I should name one of my future sons after this guy, then something's wrong with you because this is awesome. So let's read through David's mighty men list and let's read through his hall of fame of his warriors. Starting down here in actually verse 8. It says, these are the names of David's mighty men. Joab, jo- Josheb, Bash-Babeth. These are weird names. They're hard to pronounce, but I like them, okay? The chief of the three, he raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Just casual, you know, just, just real casual. His statistics are killed 800 men in one battle. I don't know how that, I don't know if they all like lined up in a single file line and he threw his spear and it just went through all of them. I don't know if they just lined up like next and he killed one next and he, I don't know how that happened, okay, but I've said this before. If you're the 800th guy and 799 guys just died fighting this one dude, maybe you'd be like, hmm. I should maybe go home and do some knitting. I don't feel like fighting this guy right now. You know, I just, I feel like this is a bad idea. Why do I feel like this? Maybe because there's a pile of 799 dead men around him. Maybe I should just run. But he killed 800 men in one battle. Okay? The list continues. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite, as, as one of the three mighty men, he was next to David when they taunted the Philistines for battle. When the, then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck, struck down the Philistines till his hand, check this out, his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. This guy, Eleazar, is so cool that he and David, before battles, would talk smack to the enemy. Maybe David learned something here from uh, Goliath. And he would go out, and they would go before the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of Israel. And be like, hey, hey you, 
Hey, notice you want to fight against God's army. Well, I got a news for you. My God is pretty big, and we're going to grind your bones into powder and uh, use it to sprinkle it as fertilizer on our fields, okay? We're going to cut off your arms and then smack you in the face with your own arm, okay? I'm going to cut off your toes and feed them to my children. What? Oh, no, maybe I'm not going to do that. That's weird. David's like, Eleazar, dude, you're a little bit weird. Sorry, bro. We're going to do it anyway, okay? My children eat flesh. No, they don't do that. But Eleazar and David would talk smack before the battles. And it goes on from there. It says that there was a battle in which Eleazar was fighting, and all the men to his right and to his left began to fall back. They began to, to flee from the battlefield. And it says that Eleazar stood his ground. I love that terminology. He stood his ground. And while everybody else melted away, he stood firm and he gripped his sword so tightly and he gripped it for so long that at the end of the battle, his fist was still clinching the sword and he couldn't pry his fingers away from the sword. How cool is that? I don't know. I'm assuming they eventually got it free, but it would be awkward if you had a sword gripped in your hand for like your entire life. Like it comes home from the battle. Hey, honey, how was the battle? Great. I am starving. Why do you have a sword in your hand? I can't get rid of it. Plastic steak, and he's like cutting with a big sword, or he's waving, bye, honey, have a great day at school, and he's waving the sword still gripped in his palm. But I'm assuming they got it free, but he was gripping it so tightly that it was clinched in his fist. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, and while everybody else is running, this dude's like, oh, good, I got more room to move around here, okay? I was uh, worried your chumps were in the way. And he stands his ground and fights against the enemy until the battle is done and every other opposing enemy has either ran or is dead on the battlefield. And then the army comes back and they're like, hey, Eleazar, what you been up to? Nothing, I've just been using this sword that I can't seem to get out of my hand and I just killed a bunch of dudes. What have you been up to? We've been running from the battle. You're pretty cool. I mean, it would have to be cool. When you have a, I kick, okay, I'm trying to like picture this. Like, it's gripped in your hand so tightly you can't even pry your fingers away from it. Oh, this is great. And it only gets better, okay? Check us out. Down here in verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the, ca- at the cave of Adama. Ad- I'm sorry, Adullam. While the band of Philistines was at camped in the valley of Rephraim, at that time David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. So check this out. David is camped in one of the uh, fortresses and the enemy is right near Bethlehem. And so David is kind of like held back right now. He's waiting for more reinforcements to get there or they're taking a break in the battle and the enemy is camped near Bethlehem. And check this out. This is interesting, okay? It says, David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He's thirsty, and all of his men are thirsty. He's like, Oh, man, what I wouldn't give right now for a Chick fil A milkshake. What I wouldn't give right now for a Slurpee, a slushy from 7 Eleven. That Mountain Dew blast is amazing. I would love for that. What would I wouldn't give right now for a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem? And he's just kind of, he's kind of speaking aloud. He's not giving an order to anyone. And three men take it upon themselves in verse 16. So, I'm sorry, so, uh, so three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Check this mission out, okay? Three guys are like, guys, David needs water. We got this. 
they go special ops forces, okay? They put on the parachutes, the night vision goggles, and like, boom, 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 they jump out of the plane, you know, pull a parachute, tactical gear, here we go, Eagle 7, Fox 5, kill the guy on the left, Whata! They then go to the well, pull out a water, a cup of water, okay? It's hard enough fighting a battle and running several miles on your own. Now do it without spilling a cup of water in your hand. Okay, imagine fighting a guy and you're like, and you're fighting the guy, you're like, why are you holding water? Don't worry about it. Ha! <laughs> Kill them, okay? They fought the battle with a cup of water, not spilling it the whole way. Or maybe they spilled it and had to go back. Like, oh, come on, dude. Hey, what time is it? Oh, it's, oh, and they spilled a drink or something. They eventually get the water. After going through the enemy lines, just three men coming back, and they get to David. And this is kind of awkward what David does. Not really, but it's funny. It says here, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. So David finally gets this cup of water, and you're like, David, dude, here, man, okay, we just fought through the entire enemy, okay, and Phil killed three guys with his pinky. It was awesome, okay, I've never seen a man do it. We, we spilled the water, went back out more, and we got it. Here you go, dude. And he just takes it and goes, just dumps it all out. They're like, <laughs> David, dude, um, so that was for drinking? Not for spilling on the ground. <laughs> Give me the cup. I'll fill it with my tears. So, I mean, and David responds, and David says, um, guys, listen. This is incredible what you've done for me. Thank you so much. And if you aren't going to have a drink of water, and everybody doesn't get to drink, then I won't. And as a testament to your sacrifice and ingratitude, I'm going to give this to the Lord. And he pours it out before the Lord, saying, look, if you guys are going to drink water, I won't drink water. We drink together. And so then they slaughtered the bad guys and ended up getting some water. That's how cool they are, okay? Without any water, they accomplished this. Then, check this out, we got another guy down here. Beneda, Beneda, Beneda. I love this guy, okay? Because it says down here uh, in verse uh, 20, Beneda, son of Jehuda, was a valiant fighter from Kabezel. This is a great name. I love these names. Who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. So two men attacked him, their best two fighters, and he attacked the two men and killed them. Just one, verse two. And then it says this, this is amazing. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed the lion. Just casual, you know, just just going down into a pit, killing a lion on a snowy day, just, just whatever, okay? And this is my favorite one, okay? This is the best part. This guy's so cool. Verse 21. He struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Beneda had, uh, went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Let's just do a recap of what this guy has accomplished here, okay? First off, he sees two of the best guys from Moab. And they're like, one of you fight us. And he's like, all right, too, I'll fight both of you guys. I ain't scared. Kills both the chumps, okay? Then there is a lion, okay? And you guys, you guys see lions and you're like, I ain't scared of no lion. Because when you see a lion, you're sitting on the couch watching National Geographics on TV, okay? You're like, that doesn't look that bad. I mean, Simba's not even that scary. Scar's not that bad or whatever. I ain't afraid. Lion King, whatever. You're not afraid, okay? And you go to the zoo, you're like, pfft. That lion's over there hiding in the shade, okay? He's probably afraid of me. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Because there's plexiglass between you. You ain't scared, okay? You actually come to a lion in the wild. Let's say you're walking your dog and you see a lion. You're like, Fido, I love you. 
stay, stay, run, and then you run away while Fido gets eaten, okay? You will run. Not only does he fight the lion, but let's just map out how the odds are stacked against him, okay? Here's a lion, and he's a person, okay? Already, the odds are pretty much against him. On top of that, the lion is where? In a pit. He is going to climb into a pit to fight the lion. This means that the lion is caged. It's been there for a while. It's hungry because it hasn't eaten anything. It's stuck in a pit. So it's hungry lion. This is already bad. On top of that, he cannot run away now. He would have to climb out of the pit to get out or get help from other people. I'm sure other guys were around him. But this means that he's climbing in there saying, look, either I'm going to come out alive or the lion's coming out alive, but both of us aren't escaping. There's no running. I'm climbing in here, and the odds are against me. I don't have anywhere to run. He's not only climbing in there to fight a lion, which is scary enough, who's hungry, which is scary enough, into a pit where he can't run away, but he's doing it on what? A snowy day. He's climbing in there when the conditions are bad. It's really slippery in there because probably he slid into the pit. I don't know if he got like a sled, like, wee, go kill a lion. I don't know how he did it. But he goes into the pit. It's slippery down there. It's freezing cold. And he kills the lion. Though the odds are stacked against him, he doesn't care. He climbs in there and kills the lion. He's like, hey, guys, anybody hungry? I got a lion here. I got a nice cool headband, too. It's like a little hoodie. It's like, a, you know, the head of like a lion that just popped up there. That'd be an awesome hoodie. You know, you're like, oh, man, it's cold out here. And there's like, you know, the eyes of the lion right here, the teeth are hanging over. You're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I killed this. Anyway, in a pit, on a snowy day, it was hungry, so was I. Anyway, he goes on, and then, this is, again, my favorite part about him. There's an Egyptian, a mighty warrior for the Egyptians, and he has a spear. Beneda, Beneda has a club. Here are the two disadvantages to this fight. Okay, first of all, a spear is sharp. You get stabbed with a spear, you die. You get hit with a club, you'll be okay. I mean, you'll have like a bruise or maybe you'll start to bleed a little bit, but you won't die immediately. Second disadvantage, a spear can reach further than a club can. You have to get real close to someone to hit them with a club. Spear, you can stab them from far away. So the disadvantage here is, I mean, that'd be like fighting a, a battle and both of you, like, let's say you're jousting and you both have, like, little jousting sticks. If one of them is longer and you can hit the other guy before you get to him, that's kind of unfair. Or if you're fencing and you have a longer, like, spear, you're like, ha-ha, and the guy's like, I didn't even move yet, and you stabbed me from there. He has a spear. And Benadio's like, I ain't scared, let's go, bring it on, I got a club. Charges this guy. He reaches out his spear to stab him. He dodges the spear, snatches it from his hand, and stabs it into the Egyptian. He kills him with his own weapon. I'm just picturing, like, the slow-motion facial expressions of the Egyptian. He's like, ha-ha, huh? Whoa. I'm just picturing, like, that slow-motion, like, stabbing, killing, losing, spear, spear coming towards me. I can't feel my abdomen anymore. And he's bleeding out. Okay, he dies. These guys are cool, okay? The mighty men of David. Can we just, can we clap it up for the mighty men of David? Come on, let's clap. Well played, man. Well played, mighty men of David. These guys are hardcore. Now listen up here, listen up. There are three characteristics that I want us to understand about the men, the mighty men 
of David. Now, here's what I want us to understand. The first thing is that we learn in this story is that these men held despite the cowards. They held their ground despite the cowards. Remember when, when Eliezer was in battle and the men beside him got scared and they were worried about dying and they were worried about the fear and they began to run. He's like, okay, you guys can run. You can go hide. You can go do something else. I'm going to stay here. It doesn't affect me whether you guys run or whether you stay. I am going to hold this ground and fight regardless of what you do. They weren't influenced by the people around them. He was influenced by the battle. He said, I'm holding right here despite what the cowards do, whether they run or not. The second thing was they attacked despite the odds. There's a, I don't know if you guys are excited about the new Star Wars coming out probably. And maybe you've seen the older ones, but there's a character named Han Solo, and he's this real rough, brave guy in the movies. And he's flying the Millennium Falcon, which is one of his spaceships. He's flying it through an asteroid field. And there's a robot named C-3PO. And C-3PO goes, um, Han, uh, there's a problem. Uh, we have, look, that's a terrible C-3PO impersonation, but I'm going to go with it. He says, there's a problem. I've calculated the odds of us making it out alive, and the odds are 8,733 to 1 that we live. And Han Solo looks at him says, never tell me the odds. How cool is that? He's like, I don't want to know the odds. I don't want to know the chance that we die. But we're going to do it anyway. And then they crash in an asteroid and all of them die. But, I'm just kidding. They all live. I'm just kidding. They made it out alive. But he's basically saying, look, I don't care what the odds are. I don't care what's stacked against us or how difficult it is. I'm going to go for it. And here we see Beneda. And though there were two men, he's like, I'll fight both men. Bring it on. Though there is a lion that is hungry in a pit where he cannot run away on a snowy day and the odds are stacked against him. He's like, I ain't scared. Let's go. Climbs into a pit, kills a lion. Though there's a Moabite, I'm sorry, an Egyptian with a spear and he has a club. He's like, doesn't matter what I got. I'll kill him with his own weapon. He doesn't care what odds are stacked against him. He attacked anyway. And finally, they sacrificed despite the cost. They sacrificed despite the cost. Those three anonymous men who special forces like broke into the enemy territory, got a cup of water and brought it back. They didn't care about the possible giving of their life. Though they tired themselves, though they risked death, though they risked being hurt or beaten up, and though they ran several miles and ran back, these men were willing to pay the cost to sacrifice despite the cost. These are David's men. And these are the mighty feats that they have accomplished. And and, and these are the mighty ways in which they live their lives. And and you might read that and you're like, wow, that's cool for the Bible. Um, But that's, that's not possible now. You know, this, this doesn't happen now. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking like, well, Barry, this is great, okay? But um, listen, dude, I don't usually see lions in snowy pits around. And if I did, I'd probably be grounded if I climbed into a cage or down, you know, into the pit with a lion. So I'd probably get grounded. Or, Barry, I'd probably get in trouble if I fought two dudes, okay, at the same time. I'd probably get in trouble if I fought anyone at school. Or, Barry, you know, you keep talking about like, you know, these being my... This isn't something that I do. I'm not in an army. I can't strike down 700 men. I'd probably go to jail for that or something. You know? I mean, you talk about being mighty and, and what do you mean? 
Let me, let me just ask you this question. What is the bravest thing that you have done in your life? Well, we have a game at my house called Hot Seat. When somebody new comes to our house, we, we sit them in a chair and we go, okay, all of us are going to take turns asking you questions. And one of the questions I love to ask is, what is the bravest thing you've done in the past year? What's the bravest thing you've done, the most daring thing, the most dangerous thing you have done in the past year? Some of them are like, um, I, I, ooh, I, I uh, rode a bicycle without my helmet? Like, they can't think of anything. And sometimes they're honest. They're like, dude, I can't think of anything. That's like, I, I can't think of anything this past year that's really, like, that brave or anything. And sometimes they'll answer. Sometimes I'll hear something like, oh, well, there was this person next to me on a bus, and I'm sitting here, and, and I, I really was nervous, but I reached out, and I, I shared the gospel with them. I, I kind of took that courage, and I even invited them to church. Or maybe you'll have somebody else who'll be like, yeah, yeah, um, well, there was this one time um, where I, I, I had to have a situation um, where uh, I, I just had to put myself out there and tell my friend, look, dude, I think you're wrong about this. And I know this might affect our friendship, but I have to let you know about it. And they were bold enough to share with their friends something that was challenging. But think about your own life. What is the bravest thing that you've done in the past year? You see, each of us will have a day where, where we will pass away and we will die. And the question is, what mighty things will you have accomplished in your life for God? Will you live in the same way as these mighty men? Will you hold despite the cowards that may run? Because guys, sometimes in your schools, there are people who might claim to be a Christian, but, but when it comes to the battle, when it comes to a hardship, when it comes to actually living out their Christian life, when it comes to, to maybe being made fun of because of your faith, when it comes to maybe losing friends because of the way that you live your life, when it comes to actually being in that situation, they will fade away and their cowardness will show. And as they fade and as they falter and as they fall back, will you hold your ground despite the cowards and say, no, 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 this is the way that I was called to live my life and I will live it regardless if anyone else does. I'm here. Will you hold your ground despite the cowards that fade beside you? The question is, will you attack despite the odds? Or will you say, but God, you don't understand. It's so dangerous what you're asking me to do. God, what you're asking is so challenging or so difficult. Why would you? There's no way I can accomplish that. God, you're telling me to start a club at my school for Christians? There's no way I could do that, God. God, you're telling me to invite my friend. That's so challenging. I can't do that. But regardless of the odds that are stacked before you, you say, I don't care what odds are stacked before me. God is with me. I'm going to attack. Will you sacrifice despite the cost? Jesus challenged Christians and he said, anyone who wants to follow me, understand, count the cost of following me. Because if you're going to follow me, it's going to be challenging. There is a training that is done for, for specialized troops and there's, there's actually a week-long process for some of the troops where, where they go through a week of hardship. Very little sleep 
exhausting conditions, um, learning all day. They're doing training and drilling and push-ups and pull-ups. And, and over 70% of the men that try out, drop out and fail. And before it all starts, before they even they start, they say, listen, we want you guys to understand what it takes to be one of the elite in our military. Count the cost. Understand the hardship that you're about to go through. Understand that if you can't take this for this week, you don't have the ability to continue forward. Count up the cost of what your life will be like if you want to join our elite force. This is what it's going to take. It's going to take grit. It's going to take hours of not sleeping. It's going to take relying on the people next to you. This is the cost that it might even cost you your life to be a part of this team. Each one of you should count the cost. Well, if you say, I want to be a Christian, I want to follow after Jesus. Jesus says, look, if you want to follow after me, I want you to understand what that means. That means that you might be persecuted and made fun of for what you believe. That means that the people around you might not understand you and you might be a stranger or weird or unique to them. It means that there are forces that will fight against you. It means that you might even have to risk your life. But I want you to count that cost I want you to think about it and then decide whether to follow me. Well, these men sacrificed despite the cost. They counted the cost. They said, I know the cost. I know what, it might, be, uh, what might be expected of me, but I'm going to go forward and obey. Will you? As I said, some people read these things and they think, well, that's stories from the Old Testament. That's, that's what those guys did back in the Old Testament, you know, kill 800 guys or part oceans. That's what they did back then. But check this out. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, God's spirit lives in us. And essentially that's saying, look, the same spirit that took someone that was dead, the same power which was in that man to raise him from the dead and bring him back to life, that same power, that same heart, same person lives in you if you are a Christian. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe and have faith in him, and if you have repented of your sins, God lives inside of you, and he gives you power to accomplish these things. We talk about these mighty men, but these men only accomplished any of these things because God gave them the power to do it. And if you want to do these things, if you want to hold while cowards run, if you want to attack despite the odds, if you want to sacrifice despite the cost, you will need God's help. But the great thing is we have a mighty God who lives in us, who dwells with us and gives us the power to do as we need to do. At the end of your life, at the end of my life, I hope that in Christian standards, if there were a plaque of the brave things that we did for Jesus, if there was a plaque or a, a record of all the things that times when we stepped out in courage, when, when we held, or everybody else was fading away, we stayed still. When we attacked, despite the odds that were stacked against us, when we sacrificed, though we knew it might cost us, there were a record of all the times that you obeyed God and followed through on his order and did what he called you to do, how long would that list be? Don't think that you have to wait till you're old to start living a brave, bold life for God. Ladies and gentlemen, you can start doing it now.
We should be doing it now. David started at the age of 13. Why can't you? Do mighty, mighty things for God. Don't be compelled by fear, but be led by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that in this room, you would raise up men and you would raise up women who would hold despite the cowards that might run, who would attack despite the odds that are stacked against them, and who would sacrifice despite the cost. Because they love you, Lord. Because they respect you. Because you first love them. I pray that we would be mighty men and women of God. And that we would do bold, brave, courageous things in your name. If these men could do the things that they did for an earthly kingdom and for an earthly king, how much so should we do these things for our heavenly king and his heavenly kingdom? Might we be warriors in the sense of fighting against the darkness, fighting against the evil of this world, and having the boldness to stand firm. God, we love you. Give us your strength. Give us your Holy Spirit to live in us and live as you would have us to live. And so in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.